Amen. Thank you, brother Buddy. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, this is our text this morning. Glad to see each of you here this morning with us. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It seems that every time that there's a tragedy, there are those who come on the scene and try to make sense of it. They try to explain it away. And what I mean to say is there are those who try to use human reasoning to assign a divine reason, using our limited intellect and knowledge, wisdom, and trying to discern the mind of God in His works. When the terrorist attacks of September 11th happened, there were many who came on and said that God was judging America, judging America for its wickedness. And although God has and, and will judge nations for their turning from Him, how can we possibly know the mind of the Lord? Now, America certainly has turned its back on the Lord, and uh, I will admit my belief that God is judging America as a whole, but to assign specific events as proof of God's judgment is unjustified and speculative at best. When Hurricane Katrina hit, there were many talking heads that came on and said that God was judging the city of New Orleans and the wickedness of its people. Even recent events like the tornadoes in Oklahoma, uh, they weren't exempt. People like Pat Robertson, which is replete with inflammatory quotes, said that basically it was their fault because they didn't pray enough. They said if they had only prayed more fervently, God would have spared them. So basically, he's, he's linking their faithfulness, or at least lack thereof, with the tornado. Now, it's very easy to look at these events such as this and wonder what caused these people to suffer this way? Why, what did they do to deserve this? And this is exactly what the Jews did. The Jews in Jesus' day, the Jews going back throughout the Old Testament, this is exactly what they did. They developed a whole theology from this. They viewed themselves as superior to others. They were the covenant people with a special favoritism by God. And because God blessed them abundantly and provided for them, when bad things happened, they had no other reason to explain it other than attributing it to personal sin, some kind of wickedness. That was the only explanation they had. So they believed that either public or personal tragedies were directly related to a person's faithfulness. And it goes way back. It goes all the way back to the book of Job. We're familiar with that story. Um, we see that Job's so-called friends could not accept any other answer for his circumstances apart from his personal sinfulness. They, they just knew that there was some type of unrepentant sin on behalf of Job that was causing him to go through the events. Now you talk about calamity. This was Job's own personal Katrina. And he had everything that he held dear to him, taken away in abrupt fashion. And despite his innocence, 
What was his friend's response? They said, confess, Job. Confess, there must be something you've done to deserve this. In Job chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz asked him, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? Later in chapter 8, verse 5, Bildad pleads with Job to get right with God. He says, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Now, there's one thing clear from the life of Job. That God does have a purpose behind everything he does and everything he allows to happen. He always has a purpose. But it is not up to man to try and assign that purpose. Only God knows. Another example of this Jewish type thinking is found in John chapter 9. Uh, verses 1 through 3, Jesus was walking with his disciples, and, and as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus refuted the idea that there was a direct correlation between sin and this man's circumstances. Now, we understand that personal sin does have circumstances, or I mean consequences, okay? Uh, They do have consequences in, in this life, and they must be dealt with. And yes, there are some sins that have greater consequences in this life than others. Those sins that just send out a ripple effect to those around you. But the point is that not every bad thing that happens can be attributed to personal sin. Now, I want you to think, think about this this morning. Let's bring it down to a, a personal level. Do you ever look at someone close to you Perhaps they're going through a a tragedy or uh, some other series of bad circumstances, and you wonder why they're suffering this fate. Maybe you might be guilty of going one step further and saying, uh, not only are you wondering, but you think, I I know what's going on. I see how they're living their life. Uh, They're obviously reaping what they're sowing. But as we'll see this morning, Jesus makes it very clear that we're not to be comparing ourselves to each other. And we're not to be wondering why some people are better off than others. Now, we're all sinners. And God expects at least two things from us. Two things from sinners. He calls us to repentance, and he calls us to production. Repentance and production. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. And I hope that we've laid some groundwork so that it will help us to set the stage for our text this morning, starting in verse 1, chapter 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, speaking of Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the first thing we want to see this morning is that God calls sinners to repentance. Jesus was asked about this group of Galileans that that Pilate had evidently murdered while making their sacrifices. And so what were these Jews, based on their theology, what were they wanting to know? What were they asking Jesus about? They wanted to know why this happened. what, What was going on in their lives to cause this tragedy to happen for them? They all wanted to know what these men did to deserve this fate. And what was Jesus' response? He says, repent. Repent unless you likewise perish. And just so they would understand, Jesus gave them one more example to contemplate. In verse 4, he asked them about the 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell. Evidently a recent tragedy. 18 people were killed. And they would want to know the same question. Why, what did they do to deserve this fate? And what was his response? Verse 5, the exact same thing. Repent, unless you likewise perish. So when it comes to repentance, I want us to see this morning that we have a universal need. Universal need. In verse 2 and 4, Jesus asked these men, he asked them if they were more sinners if they were more deserving, if they were more guilty than the others, whether the Galileans or those others in Jerusalem, were they more deserving than you? And remember, this is what the Jewish theology told them. But what did Jesus say? He said, no. No. They were not any more or less deserving than you. See, we all have the same need. We all stand as equals before God. Now, if we're saved, we stand in Christ. Okay? Our identity is in Christ. That's how we stand before God as righteous, not because of our works, but because of Christ's righteousness. We have nothing to offer from ourselves. You may be thinking, well, yes, we all need salvation, but there's just some of us that need more than others. You may even say God's grace is sufficient for anyone. Even the most violent offender can be saved. But they need it more than I do. Well, that's based on the assumption that you have anything to offer God in the first place. Remember that we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. We have nothing to boast about because we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. It is by grace alone, meaning that God gives us what we don't deserve. And there's no one that deserves it. No one. That's why we have a universal need. Romans 3.10 says that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none 
who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then later in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All fall short. Every one of us. So the question is, do some fall more short than others? Well, think about this. If we miss the mark, okay, the very high standard that God sets before us, okay, we miss the mark, that means that even one sin is enough to eternally separate us from God. Okay? That means that just one sin is infinitely short. One sin is infinitely short. Now think about this in terms of measurement. Uh, consider an infinity. I know that's a hard number to get your head around. It's impossible. But start with the distance between here and the moon. Several days to get there by conventional means. Then you take that and, and think about the distance between here and the sun. And then from here to the edge of the solar system. And then to the nearest sun or nearest star. And incidentally, that distance between here and the nearest sun is 270,000 times the distance between Earth and our sun. Okay? And you take that and you go out to the edge of the Milky Way and then the edge of the universe and on and on and on, trillions and trillions of miles to infinity. Infinity. Now, imagine taking that astronomical number and adding a few feet to it. Imagine taking that number and even adding some miles to it. And remember that infinity plus anything is still infinity. Infinity plus one, infinity plus a hundred, infinity plus infinity is still infinity. That's what it's like when we try to compare ourselves to someone else. You may say, well, I may be at infinity plus ten miles, but he's at infinity plus fifty. It just becomes unrealistic to compare ourselves. We're so far separated from God's standard. Now test yourself with with this idea. Think of a murderer. Think of someone, perhaps he's in jail. He's facing the consequences of his sins here in this life, and and justifiably so. We want to lock those people away from society. They're a danger to society. Now we know that even the most violent offender can be saved by the grace of God. But do you ever think that you're better than that person because you haven't committed the same sin as he has? Just because you haven't sinned in the very same manner? Maybe you've looked around at people close to you, a family member, a friend, someone in the community, and you think, I may be a sinner saved by grace, but at least I'm not like that person. Well, I will submit to you that that is the sin of pride and self-righteousness. We all have the same universal need. When we start comparing ourselves to each other, we may find examples around us that make us feel better about ourselves. That's because we're comparing ourselves to other human beings. And we can only feel good about ourselves with pride and self-righteousness. Jesus specifically addresses this very thing in Luke 18. 
Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Listen to this. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have a universal need, and we understand we need to understand this in order to combat pride and to combat the flesh. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And in Luke 18, 18, a little further down from that text I just read, Jesus himself makes the point that no one is good except for God. No one. So back in today's text, Jesus is making the point that everyone dies. Everyone. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe 50 years from now, you may die in various uh, number of ways, such as old age, peaceful in your sleep, perhaps a car accident, heart attack, or maybe a tragedy such as these. But the ultimate point was not how and when you'll die, but that death comes to everyone. Everyone. And so the much more important question was and remains to be, are you prepared for what comes next? Are you prepared? He's saying you're worried about physical death. But you need to be worried about spiritual death. You're worried how these people died, but you need to be worried if you're prepared for what comes next. What the Bible refers to as second death. So we have this universal need. And because of that, we also have a universal message. Now what was Jesus' response to these men? He responded to both these tragedies the same way. Okay? And what should our response be in times of tragedy? Or what should our response be in even times of abundance and blessing? What should our message always be? Repent, unless you likewise perish. This is the universal message that uh, needs to be proclaimed to all sinners in response to that universal need. Repent. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see, biblical repentance is always connected with faith in Christ. Repentance is simply turning away. It's turning in the opposite way from sin. Uh, But you have to be turning towards something. Turning uh, directly opposite of sins means that you're turning directly towards God. You see, there's no in-between. You're either fleeing towards God, fleeing towards His righteousness, or you're fleeing towards sin. Either way. So turning from sin is turning to something. 
And that something is always faith in Christ. John the Baptist, when uh, he came on the scene, he was heralding King Jesus. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is our message to a lost and dying world. Repentance. Not some feel-good messages about living a happier life. And certainly not the pop psychology that is proliferating our pulpits today. You know, Jesus could have used this opportunity to teach several things. He could have talked to them about physical violence or political oppression, referencing uh, the, the massacre involving the Roman governor, Pilate. He could have uh, talked to them about prejudice. The Jews in Jerusalem looked down on the Galileans. Okay, that's why they brought it up in the first place. They thought somehow it would happen to them, but not to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus followed up with an example from uh, their area. He could have helped them to understand their need to simply enjoy this life while it lasts. To have their best life now, because tomorrow is uncertain. But no. He used this opportunity to remind them that they are in the same situation as others and that because of their sin, they need to repent. Repent now or pay later. This is our universal message that we're called to proclaim. In the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible knows. It knows repent and believe. This is our universal message. And we should do everything we can to proclaim it. Think about this. How much energy and money does society spend in educating people on some new disease? When the AIDS epidemic came about, there were untold amounts of money spent through TV, radio commercials, literature, celebrity announcements, education through our school system. They wanted to get the word out. They were very effective at doing so. But as bad as that was and other diseases are, sin is infinitely more dangerous and has eternal consequences. Remember, Jesus says not to fear what may harm the body at the expense of what destroys the soul. This is the real epidemic. All will perish. All. Your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your friend at work, the person walking down the street, all will perish unless they repent and trust in Jesus. Now in verse 6, Jesus gives a parable to further his point. How can you know if you've truly repented? What is the outward sign of repentance? What should we look for? And we see that it's spiritual fruit. Therefore, not only does God call sinners to repentance, but he also calls sinners to production. Verse 6, he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. 
Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer. And if it bears fruit for the next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So Jesus tells this parable of a fig tree, and he's telling it to a Jewish audience that would uh, immediately recognize it for its symbolism relating to the nation of Israel. Jesus himself had used the illustration of the barren fig tree in other parts of his ministry. And he used it as a condemnation of Israel for their unfruitfulness and their rejection of God's Messiah. But here it also has a personal application. We see this tree planted in what would be precious soil. Uh, Due to the conditions of the area, good soil was a sought-after commodity. And here we have this tree planted, and for three years it was not meeting the owner's expectation. Three years unfruitful. So God expects us to produce, and we stand without excuse because he distributes ample provision. Ample provision. We are so abundantly blessed. So much so that we often take it for granted, especially here in Valonia when there's a dozen churches on every corner, an ample supply of the gospel printed in Bibles and, and literature and videos and television shows. Not to mention the liberty we have throughout this region and throughout our country. There's no reason why we shouldn't be producing fruit for the kingdom. God has provided everything we could possibly need to serve him. Ample provision. But this parable also shows it's a clear illustration of God's patience, his long-suffering towards sinners. In verse 8 and 9, we see how he displays astounding patience. The tree had already been in the vineyard for three years, three years without producing anything. The owner had every right to cut it down. But what happened? He didn't. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, the question should not be, why do certain people die? But the more pressing question is, why are we still alive? God has every right to strike us down in our unrighteousness, but he doesn't. Why? Why is that? It's because of his patience and long-suffering. For the lost, it's so that they might come to salvation. For the redeemed, it's so that we might bear fruit. Every day the tree wasn't cut down was an act of God's patience. The tree was given another chance. God is a God of second chances. No matter what your past, no matter how fruitless you've been, if you're still alive, it's not too late. Produce fruit. The vine dresser would give this tree everything it needed to grow and produce fruit for one more year. It had ample provision. It was shown amazing patience. But... God's patience is not unlimited. 
For the tree, it only had one year. Same goes for us. God's patience and grace is only a limited time offer. It's for the here and now. There will come a day where it is too late. The time is coming. No one knows. Some have longer than others. But the day is coming when your unfruitfulness will result in destruction. The time to bear fruit is now because there will be a time when it's too late. Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for a man once to die. But after this, the judgment. And so God is patient with you. He's patient with me. But his patience is limited. And make no mistake, he will deliver an appropriate penalty. For the fig tree, if it didn't produce fruit in a year, it would be cut down. John the Baptist told the Pharisees that the axe was already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's plenty, there is a penalty for unrepentance. There's a penalty for unfruitfulness. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Matthew 25.46, we see that the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Either you can repent now or you can pay, pay later. But don't take advantage of God's patience. Don't think that your time is unlimited because it's not. So what happened to the fig tree? Did it produce? Did it go on to uh, produce great fruit for the owner? Did it take advantage of the provision and the patience that was shown to it? We don't know. The parable is left open-ended. So the question becomes, what about you? What about you? The message this morning is to repent unless you likewise perish. It's a limited time offer to repent now or to pay later. And this applies to everyone here this morning. Everyone. There are those that need to come to Jesus for the very first time. They need to repent and confess their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this message is of extreme importance to you because even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. And you can have that today. Today, through faith, by His grace. And we'd love to show you how that can happen. Others here may be in the vineyard. Uh, You're in church. You have the general appearance as a fig tree. You have ample access to the truth. You have every possible opportunity to grow and to produce fruit. But you're barren. The message is the same. You too need to repent. The book of James says that your faith without works is dead. Do not be deceived. Coming to church, reading your Bible... Even participating in this corporate service is not what saves you. 
It is only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul knew this. That's why in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? True spiritual fruit can only be produced from a life regenerated and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you must repent. You must repent unless you likewise perish. Now for the rest of us, those that may be secure in their salvation, the challenge still stands. God expects sinners to produce, to be fruitful. We're sinners saved by grace, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works and to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. So the question is, is this the spiritual fruit that you're seeing in your life as a professing believer? Are you seeing this in your life? If not, it's not too late. It's not too late to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And live your life in such a way that this fruit overflows in abundance overflows in abundance like Philippians 1.11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy for sinners like us that despite our inability to live according to the way you'd have us to live and how far we fail to reach your standard of holiness. We're so thankful that it is not up to us. We're so thankful because of your grace and your mercy that was displayed in such abundance on the cross that we can share in that gift that you provided for us that we can stand boldly before the throne of God bearing your righteousness that you've imputed, you've credited to us because you've taken upon our sin on our behalf. We thank you for that. We thank you for that boldness and confidence it gives us. We thank you that you've given us a task, a commission to spread this good news all corners of the world and we pray for boldness we pray that we will go forth from this place not only examine our lives for the fruit of the spirit to confirm that inner work in our lives but also to bear fruit in keeping with righteousness so that we may go out and produce more fruit and grow the kingdom of god that we've been tasked with and we do so lord not for our glory, but for your glory and your praise because you so rightly deserve it. And we just thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.